Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Chris Jennings. Today, I've got a special guest from Sport Dog Brands. It is Josh Miller. And Josh is a product training specialist for Sport Dog, but he's also the owner of Riverstone Kennels in Wisconsin. Welcome to the show, Josh. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate you having me on. So we're going to do what we always do with a lot of our guests because uh, we are constantly introducing new people to the show and new retriever trainers, new hunters, new scientists. Just share with our audience a little bit about yourself, where your kennel is, and and what you do on a daily basis. Yeah, well, so Riverstone Kennels, uh, it, it's a kennel that uh, that I started now about ten years ago. Um, we're located in Western Wisconsin. We uh, we breed uh, British Labs. That's a big part of what we do. I spend uh, a number of trips every year, uh, not this year, uh, but every other year overseas, uh, spending time with people over there, bringing over uh, the specific dogs that I'm wanting to incorporate into our breeding program here. Uh, and then on the training side, uh, you know, of course we train the dogs, we breed, but we don't just only train those dogs. We train dogs, um, you know, from literally, uh, all over the country, all over the world. So we have dogs, uh, in the kennel right now, as I speak from, uh, British Columbia from, um, let's see, Colorado, California, Montana, Washington, uh, Georgia, Texas, uh, quite a few from Texas, you know, from all over the place. And, and what's so cool for me about that is that I get to see dogs, uh, get used in such different applications from all over the country, you know? So, um, you know, a lot of the, the, even just take a Labrador, a Labrador here in the Midwest, uh, likely does, you know, a lot of say pheasant hunting, uh, but then mix in, you know, some waterfall hunting where, uh, our dogs from, you know, they come up from say Arkansas are usually mega duck hunters. Uh, you know, our Texas guys oftentimes do a lot of uh, dove hunting. And so what's really fun uh, to me about that is, um, it's always kind of different challenges, uh, you know, different goals. And then, you know, of course, our aspiration for every dog that we put through training is to get the most out of uh, the dogs while we have them here. Um, and and I think uh, one of the things that's so special to me about what it is that I do is the relationships that I'm uh, able to build off of that. I can honestly say that some of, of my closest relationships and closest friendships I have today uh, is because of these dogs. And, uh, you know, you think about it, that's a pretty powerful thing. Absolutely. No, that's cool. The diversity and the training probably mixes it up for you as well. You know, you're not necessarily just focused on waterfowl, but you do an upland and all, you know, just various. I think that's an interesting aspect as a dog trainer. But, you know, that kind of leads me to what made you decide you wanted to run a kennel and be a full time dog trainer? I mean, it's not an easy job. I think, you know, everyone knows that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a funny question because um, I don't know many people that you know, that, you know, it was like, well, I just woke up one day and was like, ah, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be a dog trainer today. I also don't know many people that like from the time that they were little has like, this was like the goal and aspiration. It's really interesting to, to hear people's stories. And so my story, uh, started with uh, a dog named Easton. So we back up, uh, to when I was growing up, like my, you know, uh, late middle school, early high school days, uh, I was kind of the black sheep of my family as it went in the outdoors. Um, my family, uh, being up here in Wisconsin, uh, were big deer hunters, you know, so my dad, my grandpa, my uncle, my brothers, they all loved deer hunting. And for whatever reason, like I just wanted to duck hunt, like ducks, just, they mesmerized me. I had, you know, just was drawn to them. And, uh, my grandfather, 
had a cabin up in northern Wisconsin. Uh, he had this cabin was on a lake. And uh, across the road, he had uh, an 80 acre chunk where they did all their deer hunting. And so when we would go up there on the weekends, um, you know, my entire family would go out uh, the back door and go out uh, deer hunting. And I'd go at the front door and have my you know, little skiffer canoe. And, you know, these uh, I remember I had like four or five like old, old beat up decoys and I'd set them out. And, you know, I, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just hopefully trying to uh, to kill a duck. And uh, and that was kind of my routine. Well, through that time, I wanted some companionship. And so I, I purchased my first uh, retriever uh, named Easton and I did everything the wrong way as far as like how I preach you should be buying a puppy and finding your, your gun dog today is like exactly the opposite of how I did it back then. But again, I had no idea what I was doing. So, uh, I, so I, I get this puppy and I work with this puppy, you know, I you know, read every book I can watch every DVD. And, uh, it really became a passion of mine. Um, you know, that any, any little bit of free time that I had, I was working with Easton and, uh, I had no idea at the level that I had uh, Easton trained at. And I met a gentleman in, uh, if you guys remember, like Sportsman's Warehouse. I think they're starting to come back now. Uh, but up here, there was a little Sportsman's Warehouse across the river in Minnesota. And I just happened to be in the dog aisle looking at stuff. And a gentleman kind of approached me and um, yeah, asked me if I had a dog, kind of struck up a conversation. Well, that gentleman uh, turned out to be the secretary of the Retriever Club that was you know, local to where I was. And invited me out for a training day, and uh, I remember going to that training day. I mean, I, I swear I was I was probably more anxious than uh, than I'd been for uh, any football, basketball, baseball game that I had going on that year. It was like that was like a big deal to me. So I get there and uh, start running Easton, and the yeah again I had no idea the level I had him at, but he's running with their master dogs, and, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, like you have to be running this dog, you have to be you know doing all this stuff, and. Uh, so I did, and we were very successful. And uh, that all 100% had to do with Easton. He turned out in spite of me, not because of me. Um, but that really kind of uh, you know leapfrogged me into uh, not only having a passion for this, but you know the connections that I had. You know, so I I you know was really really fortunate to have um, a lot of great mentors that were professionals you know, in the business. But that all stemmed from we kind of you know started this conversation with um, you know the relationships that these dogs can can give and create. Well, this was definitely that. You know, I, I was able to network and get with some of the what I consider some of the best trainers in the country. You know, learn under them, really understand um, you know their methods. Um, there's stuff of theirs that I still use today. There's stuff that um, didn't fit me and my style, but I still learn from it. And, uh, it really kind of molded me to where I am, but it really all stems back to, um, you know, that, that little Labrador, uh, Easton, who, uh, was my best friend of 13 and a half years. Yeah, that's a cool story. And I think there's a lot of people out there who have, you know, very similar stories that, that kind of start out. I know mine is, was very similar in the way that you described it as, you know, in spite of your lack of knowledge in training when you were younger, your dog still turned out. I had, I had one very similar to that, that I had no, you know, like I was 16 years old when I got my first lab and I had no idea what I was doing. And, and fortunately the dog turns out, um, you know, I, like you said, I wouldn't recommend that for most people, but, uh, you know, it's, it's always cool to hear people's stories and, and how they got into it. Um, so how did you start getting involved with sport dog and the company? Cause you know, as like the product training specialist, you know, how did you just kind of step into that role and how, and, and what exactly is that 
role with sport dog. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so it's, it's kind of evolved. Um, I've kind of evolved and grown uh, with this company. Sport dog has been a great uh, company for me. Um, they've supported me kind of throughout my career, but, uh, that really all started with, uh, so I was running a number of hunt tests and field trials, uh, again, when I was younger, uh, a lot with Easton and I was, I was being successful and there just wasn't many people my age doing this. Uh, yeah, I think at the time I was probably, you know, 19, you know, somewhere in there. And, uh, you know, so there was actually a, a representation from sport dog at an event. He approached me and he said, Hey, um, I'd love to get someone, you know, of your age involved in what we have going on. And uh, I had actually already been using uh, sport dog products back then. Um, trying to think it was the 1800, I think I was using, which was a completely, uh, you know, different, you know, machine than it is now. I mean, the technology has come so far. Um, but you know, I was already using it, so it made sense. And, uh, so I went and, uh, you know, became a part of the pro staff and, you know, then it kind of evolved from there where, um, yeah, I started you know, doing some speaking engagements. I started kind of you know, spreading my knowledge and, uh, you know, just kind of, you know, went from there. And so now what I do, um, you know, I, I kind of have gone through the gamut. You know, I did, um, I handled some sales accounts for them as I had some connections, uh, with, you know, some accounts, uh, enjoyed that, but it just, it was, it was too time consuming to juggle the kennel, uh, and that. And so, uh, I managed the pro staff for a while and, uh, I love every single person that was on that pro staff, but it did feel like, uh, it was a full-time babysitter role <laughs> at times. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so, uh, again, just, you know, became very time consuming. So I, I backed away from that. And now, um, what I do for sport dog is, you know, as a product training specialist is, really what I enjoy doing, which is sharing my knowledge, um, sharing my experiences to try to help, um, people have a better experience with their dogs. And, and I think that this is so important because, um, it doesn't matter what you're using, you know, product wise, whether it's a leash, uh, whether it's an e-collar, whether it's a check cord, um, whether it's you, you're just being vocal, whether it's a whistle, you know, how, how you work with your dog and that tool really, um, you know, it dictates the success or not, um, you know, of that training session, or, um, really as you kind of go through that dog's life, you know, whether you consider, uh, that dog a success or not. And so, uh, I really enjoy that. I love that. I get to travel all over the country. Um, again, not this year, <laughs> but, uh, most years <laughs> and speak, uh, on that. And so, uh, again, meet great, great people doing it. And, uh, it's something that I really enjoy. Yeah. Well, let's go back real quick because you mentioned something. And I think this is kind of a cool jumping off point. Um, you mentioned that the way that you got your dog is not the way that you would tell people when they're looking for a dog. What exactly do you tell people when someone calls you and said, Hey, I'm, I'm, I want to get a dog. And what's your first steps in explaining this whole process to them? Yeah, well, um, I'll try to give the uh, the abbreviated version because, as you're probably going to tell very quickly, I get extremely passionate about this, and so I can kind of, yeah, you know, I can kind of ramble. So I'll try not to do that. But um, so breeding to me, um, it's it's way more than just hey, let's put two good dogs together and have puppies, right? Um, and so where I really started seeing this stuff um, was you know years ago. You know, like I said, I've had the kennel for over ten years now. Um, and, and I was seeing this even before, um, yeah, I had the kennel where, you know, we would have, you know, dogs in for training, um, that the pedigree and the, and the paper said that this dog should be great. 
while the dog was hard mouthed, the dog was, you know, whiny and vocal, the dog was, you know, what have you. And I really started doing a lot of research, um, actually took classes and schooling on uh, genetics and, and really what genetics are and what traits, you know, um, you know are passed on, how they're passed on. Um, and really took a deep dive into it. And so, um, you know, things like for me, I believe a mouth is genetic. That's one of the reasons I, I, uh, I spend so much time overseas, um, you know, because they put an emphasis on a very natural mouth. What I mean by a natural mouth is not chomping, not hard mouthed, not shaking, and that natural retrieve, which, you know, a lot of these dogs have a natural retrieve. I mean, they want to have that good soft hold and bring it all the way to you um, just about every time naturally. Um, where you know, on paper here, you know, one of the things that I kind of fought with was, um, you know, you could have dogs that are very accomplished, very titled, um, and again, on paper look great, but you don't know what it took training wise to get that dog to that point. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, it, you know, there are a lot of very talented professional trainers out there that can get dogs to do very, very awesome things. But what was natural in that dog? Because that as a puppy owner, as your average Joe that doesn't have the experience, doesn't have the knowledge, doesn't have the tools, you are going to inherit what is natural in that puppy. And so, um, that's one of the reasons that, uh, so like, you know, my, my stud dog specifically that I have, I keep all the boys, uh, I, I get them as young dogs, build them up. And then I kind of decide whether they, um, you know, are going to stay here and be a part of uh, my team, or if I'm going to find uh, a forever home for them where they can go be a great dog, everything like that. And I've moved on from dogs that I absolutely adore because there's something just not quite there. And, uh, you know, the, the proof is really in the pudding here, as far as these puppies that, that we've been, uh, been putting out. I mean, these dogs are so natural. They're so you know, like uh, whining is one that I cannot stand in the duck blind. Mm -hmm. Why would anyone want to sit there for, you know, you know, well, eight minutes, let alone eight hours sitting there listening to a dog scream and whine in a duck blind. Um, you know, and, and that's where, you know, again, on paper, you know, we run you know, hunt tests all year and, you know, we pass the same that the dog you know next to us passes they're screaming and and you know but the dog's doing the work mm -hmm. right so on paper they look very very similar but you know for breeding purposes i'm looking for extremely um you know, specific things so that's one thing um two is the health so we do i believe it's 17 genetic tests on every male and female that we breed the reason it's that number is because that is the the most uh test that you can run on a labrador retriever um to to and what we're trying to do is we are just trying to produce the absolute healthiest puppies that we possibly can um because there is no fun in you know getting a puppy and you know a year down the road you're dealing with hip dysplasia issues um you know you know two years down the road, you have cataracts or whatever it is. I mean, there's so much out there. And, and so for me, I believe as a breeder to do justice to the breed and to justice to my clients, I need to take it upon myself to do everything I can to make sure that these puppies are as healthy as they can. Now there are always, anytime you deal with animals, there's always things that come up, but there's a lot that we can eliminate just by going and going through that. So, you know, th those are a couple things, uh, yeah, again, I could probably go on and on about this, but those are a few things I really, really focus on. Um, you know, and then, uh, I think another piece of it too, is, um, 
sometimes people like, especially, uh, you know, when they call in and talk with me, they get a little scared away, uh, because of our waiting list. So, uh, we have a waiting list of about a year and a half. If you were to call us right now, it'd be about a year and a half wait before I could get you a puppy. Um, that's not because we're, we're only having two litters a year. We have about 10 to 12 litters a year. Um, I believe that's enough to, you know, be, be putting great puppies in uh, people's hands, but it's not to the point that I'm losing control quality control. I'm not producing puppies just to produce puppies. Um, but I always tell people that if you're, if you're looking for a puppy, you need to do your research ahead of time and not be in that. I want one right now mode, because if you, if you're out there looking for a puppy, you're calling people, you will find that a lot of reputable breeder uh, breeders rather, they will have a waiting list. And hopefully what that does is it tells you they're doing something right. Um, if, if you're calling and, and you, you know, make a phone call and they're like, yeah, I have one. He's ready to go next week. There's likely a reason for that. And so, you know, you are going into God willing, a 15 year commitment, right? Rushing it just to get a puppy right now is not the best way to go into that relationship. When I got my dog when I was 16, I showed up at a farmer's house and he gave him to him for free. <laughs> so, you know, I had knew nothing about this. And, uh, but, you know, there are people out there who do that. But then there's also this other side that is um, very serious. And, and for someone who's looking to get a puppy, um, it's something to really look into and, and call around and call someone like you who has this, this knowledge and experience to, uh, to really learn about what these different breeds and these natural trends that these dogs have. It's, it's really cool. We could probably talk for two hours just about that. What are, what are you doing with dogs at this time of year? I and mean, what are you telling people? You know, I'm sure that, you know, people that are coming to pick up their dog that's been going through training sessions or, you know, or people are calling you like, hey, my dog's doing this. What, you know, what exactly would you be working on right now or just reinforcing during the season? Right. Well, first off, you know, thank God that it's here because I have been waiting for this uh, all season long. Uh, I'm a duck nut for those of you guys that that know me. Um, I waterfall 192 days last year. It's like it's this is what I look forward to all year long. And so I'm stoked that it is here. Um, but, you know, usually what we find right now is that there are two different types of people that are out there with their dogs. There's uh, person A who has been diligently working with their dog all summer long that is getting to the point that, Hey, we're finally to the point that we can go put this in action or person B that, um, I'm going to call it, or it gets in, uh, I'll call it, Oh shoot mode where, Oh shoot. I haven't been doing anything with my dog and I should probably try to do something really quick because season starts the next week. Um, and so usually it's one of those, those two camps. And so, um, you know, let's take person a, the, the one that has been, you know, working with their dog all year long, that person, what we're trying to do now is we're really trying to hone in on situational training as it re, as it, uh, correlates with how you're going to be hunting, right? Because, um, let's face it. If you've done all the work, your dog's crushing it, you're super happy, but all of your, your uh, work up to this point has been in the backyard or down the street at the soccer fields, it doesn't mean this is just going to translate over you know, into your hunting setups, right? And so I'm really big on preaching control what you can control. And what I mean by that is that if, if you take your dog into a, a waterfall situation Think about all the things you can't control. You can't control what the birds do. You can't control how they finish, if they finish, if you see anything even. Um, 
And like for me as a trainer, like the one thing that I cannot replicate is 30 mallards swinging around and then wanting to finish right in our face, right? Especially for a young dog, you think about if the wheels are going to come off, it's going to be right then, right? And there's just no way to train for that. So instead of worrying about that, we're going to control what we can control. Um, what blind are you going to be hunting out of? Well, let's train specifically out of that blind. Um, what, uh, you know, are you, does your dog wear a vest? Okay. Well, let's get them in the vest. Are you, uh, are you going to ride in a boat, you know, or a, a side by side or whatever it is to and from your hunting places? Like, let's try to condition the dog to as much as he or she is going to see on opening day as possible. Because if we control that stuff, now we've just minimized what we actually have to worry about. Right. Um, and we've prepared the dog the best we can specifically for young dogs. You think about if all the training has been essentially yard work or pretty low distraction level areas in particular, and that dog has never seen a boat. And the first thing you're doing is three 30 in the morning, headlamps are going, you throw the dog in the boat. He's going, what in the world is going on? Then you go and stick him in a blind he's never seen before. And you just expect that he's going to look out there and retrieve and crush this thing because he's been doing it with bumpers in the backyard all year on all, all year. You are going to be sadly disappointed more than likely. Right. Um, because I mean, it's, it's just unfair, you know, so we need to really, again, control, we can control, prepare them for that. Um, cause it puts us in the best uh, situation to succeed. So that's what we're doing with, with those, you know, that camp that chaos that you're describing, you know, I'm just going through my head, you know, the boats and the headlamps and the, the blinds getting in and out of weird, oddly shaped, you know, blinds and doing that. And, and, and that's something that you can probably only recreate so much of that chaos, um, to an extent, but, but it's something that, you know, if the dog's not familiar with all of this situation, it's going to totally throw them off. I, I can see, you know, that's, that's a great tip for people to think about as they, as they work towards the season, I guess. Right. Well, and if, if your dog isn't prepared for that stuff, I mean, that's on you, right? I mean, we can't expect that we just throw our dog in a boat that's never seen a boat before and he should just be fine with it or throw a, throw him in a blind he's never seen before and he should just work out of it like he's done it a hundred times. That's on us if we have not prepared the dog for that. And really most of, of, uh, whether we perceive a hunt as successful or not is how the dog handles those things. Right. So if we haven't done our job, our ex our mindset and expectations have to change so that we, because, because I get it, like it is not always possible to do that stuff. Right. So mm -hmm. I travel a lot, um, to hunt. So I'm hunting a lot of situations. I don't know how we're going to get to and from the blind. I don't know what kind of setup we're going to be in. I, you know, so it's not always possible, but again, control what you can control. Um, I think that's probably the best advice that I have for someone kind of in that, um, in that situation. Um, but then if we go over to, you know, the, the, Oh shoot, you know, camp, uh, as we called it, that camp really, uh, I just spoke about mindset and expectations, your mindset and expectation really has to change, especially depending on where your dog is at. Now, if you have a finished dog that is a seasoned veteran, he's five, six years old, yeah. Okay. You might've been able to get away with all year, not doing anything, give him a few, you know, tune ups and he could be ready to go. Right. But if you have a specifically a young dog, excuse me, that has not been in this situation before your mindset drastically has to change as far as what your expectations are going to be for this year. So, you know, you're, you may have to go from wanting a dog to be completely steady and doing really solid marks to, Hey, maybe because I haven't done my job, 
I'm going to need to leave the gun at home, hold the dog by the collar and just let the dog get the, you know, get this exposure. Um, you know, because bad habits, as we all know, they're created way better or way quicker rather than good habits are. And so your expectations have to change, but let's, let's try to pinpoint a few things and say, I'm going to focus on this. You know, so for me, any kind of duck dog steadiness is the utmost importance. I don't care if they can't do anything else. If they're going to be steady, they're going to be safe. And ultimately that's the name of the game, right? Because I see way too often, especially on social media. Now I see all these videos and stuff, right? I see way too often birds are coming down, finishing, you know, basically their toes are going to be touching the water. Everybody pops up to shoot. And that dog is already halfway into the decoys and people are shooting right over that dog. Like that is just not safe. And, and I don't care if that dog goes and picks up every bird that's there. I would rather that dog be steady and make, you know, make my buddy go pick up those birds because it is just, it, it's not safe. And I don't care, uh, you know, whose dog it is. There is not a bird on this planet that is worth a dog's safety. And so, um, you, you might just hone in on a couple specific things and say, Hey, I'm going to do this and really focus on that. Again, your mindset has to change. You're probably not going to have the season you, you had first hope for, but again, that's on you, right? Life got busy. Stuff got in the way. It's not the dog's fault. Mm-hmm. So let's change our mindset and let's go into this season and, and have a successful one, uh, with that mind change. Now you mentioned something as we're talking about the progression of water, the transition, I guess I should say into, you know, duck season, you mentioned, you know, about some different products you use and the various ways that you use it. Um, you mentioned a collar that you transitioned from like a collar that you use during training versus a collar that, um, when duck season starts, you're using a different sport dog collar. Um, can you kind of explain, you know, that scenario and, and why you switch those collars up? Yeah. Well, and so, um, you know, so this is, I'd say pretty specific to me. I, I wouldn't you know, preach that, um, you know, everyone should necessarily do this, but so when I train all year long, I'm using the, uh, the sport dog 2525. And the reason I use that is, um, that tube model, it's a, a big kind of tubular transmitter. It just, it fits, um, it fits what I do really well. I can put it in my back pocket. Um, I actually, I, I wear, um, um, you know, certain kind of pants that have a side pocket. It fits in great. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of things I really like about that. It fits in my hand, but I can do a lot of cool things. Like with one hand, I can go low, medium, high. I get a couple extra levels. I love it for training, but there's no way that I would, you know, lug that hammer around <laughs> when I'm out hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I transitioned to the 1825 is what I love when I'm out, um, or the 1825X rather, when I'm out hunting, because it's just more convenient uh, for application in the field. It's a smaller transmitter. Um, I don't need to have maybe all the features that I did in my training collar, because when I'm out hunting, my hope is that I've done the work in, during the summer up to this point that I don't have to use that collar very often. You know, we hear all the time you know, from clients or at shows that, I mean, people are like, oh, man, like after the training was done, like I, I rarely ever had to use it, which is great. That's exactly why you, know, you use it is so you have that clear communication. The training is, is transitioned very smoothly and you guys get on the same page. Um, and so it, it, it's a, the 1825 X, I think for a hunting unit is great. Now it's a mile range, which I know for a lot of people, it's like, why would I ever need that? Um, but I just always love to have the extra insurance. I would rather have way too much than not enough 
um, you know, for a situation. One last question for you. And, and I think this is something that I picked up from your website, but and, and it'll be a good kind of introduction for, um, for someone who, who either has a dog or wanting to get a dog, or he maybe even has two dogs. Um, but on your website, you kind of talk about how two dogs rarely respond to training methods the same way, you know, and so you may have to take a different approach, but can you uh, share some of examples of this and how as a trainer, you modify from one dog to the next with certain aspects of your training? So I believe is my, my job as a professional trainer is no different than one of a school teacher, right? So I have my students just like they have theirs. And just like their students all have different strengths and weaknesses. And that teacher has to communicate with each of those kids differently to get the most out of them. So do I with these dogs. Um, now the, there's a lot that, that goes into this, whether it's, you know, breeding, temperament, um, you know, drive, intelligence level, you know, what have you. But I really believe we're, we're seeing, uh, we're seeing softer and softer dogs, uh, than we did years ago. And by soft, I don't mean bad. I just mean that if you look at the role of a dog in the house and a part of the family, that has changed over time. Like I remember my grandpa had a dog named Warden. Um, he was a big chocolate lab. He had an outdoor kennel. And I remember as a kid, my grandpa telling me, don't, you don't play with Warden. He's a hunting dog. You're going to screw him up if you play with him, you know? And like now my grandpa's a dog that sleeps in bed with him at night, you know? <laughs> and so like that, that mind change. And, uh, but that's also, you know, so at the kennel, um, so we have 40 dogs at the kennel. Not one of those dogs doesn't live in the house. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at that and the role that that dog has as a part of the family, that dog, whether you hunt six days a year or 96 days a year, that dog is a family member first on hunting dog second, right? So the temperaments as breeders, you know, shift for that naturally change to a softer dog because a softer dog isn't going to fight you every step of the way, isn't going to try to be dominant you know, with you every, every day, every second. Right. And so you're seeing a shift in the dogs. So what's happening is we're seeing that those old school tactics, like the, you know, beat them overhead with a two by four, you know, type of situation or like that heavy, heavy, heavy handed, you know, on them. It doesn't work for these dogs. They're not that dog that's going to take that push through it, take that push through it. So we have to, I believe, be even more talented as trainers and really get into each dog. You say, so, so, you know, Bo here is very, very soft and submissive and he needs a lot of encouragement where the next dog, Hank, has a little more pop and, and drive and is going to push on us a little bit. And then the next, you know, so you can see how with every dog, they might all be Labrador retrievers, but each of those dogs is an individual. And I just have way too much pride for the level that the dogs are at when they leave my facility to not reach the potential of every one of those dogs. And so we're constantly having to change our mindset each, not even every day, but each dog so that we, we can get the most out of them for each training session. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, I would say for, you know, for the guy at home that maybe has one dog is getting another dog, uh, you will likely see that right. That, you know, the second dog doesn't go through the training, you know, in, in the way, in the manner that the first dog did. And so it's going to challenge you as an owner and as a handler and as a trainer yourself. But if you really step back and look at that as, as the fun that it could be, you're going to enjoy it. Um, if you, if you look at it as, 
uh, this, like this, this is a dog. It should just go through it. You're likely going to get frustrated and there's going to be, um, you know, a lot of you know, hiccups there. But if you really step back and say, Hey, this dog is a different dog. I need to change my approach. I think you'll really enjoy that process. It's something that I enjoy every single day. No, that's great. And I think that's a good lesson for everyone to, you know, you're honestly training to the temperament of the dog and, and being able to get more out of that dog because of that. And that also builds a much more solid relationship than, you know, trying to force a dog to necessarily do something that, you know, it's not going to do um, in a negative manner. You're you know, probably spending more time on the encouragement side and really directing that dog to do what you want it to do through their temperament, which is a good lesson for everyone to remember. Right. Well, and the other thing that I think, um, especially let's go back to that situation where somebody has a dog getting another puppy and kind of going to go through the process again, the absolute best thing that you can do is do not compare this new puppy to your older dog, mm-hmm. right? Because we have a way about us as humans is we kind of glorify the great times and we kind of suppress the bad times. And it's amazing how often people forget that, that older dog that is this finished dog. I'm super proud of like he was a puppy once too. And he went through all these struggles and all these peaks and valleys. And I mean, he went through all that stuff. Right. Um, but it's amazing. You know, people come and pick up puppies, even if it's you know the second or third dog from us, and they're like, Oh, my, my, you know, last dog, he's, he's incredible. He's great. He's the best dog of our group and blah, 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 blah. And all that stuff is great. And I let him go. And at the end of it, I'm like, that is awesome. I love that. But don't hold this puppy to that standard, because if you do, you're setting yourself up for frustration right off the bat. Um, you really have to look at, at that puppy as an individual and really go through, go down that road, um, in a different manner, right? We, we want to make sure that we give this puppy the, the start that it needs so that he too can become that great dog. You know, a lot of times you hear people say dog of a lifetime. I, I don't believe that. I believe that we have dogs inserted into our lives at different times that we need them. So like Easton, Easton for me, as we talked about uh, early on in, in the show here was the dog that got me into this. I mean, he literally changed the trajectory of my life, right? Like I would not have mm-hmm. what I have today if it wasn't for that dog. And that's a pretty incredible thing. But I like he was a dog. Like everybody tells me all the time, like he was your dog of a lifetime, right? Well, now I have Brock. Brock is that dog. Like I put him up against any dog you could find. I mean, he is a, a crazy, crazy level. He's everything that I want in a dog, and I love him to death. And you know, these companies. You know, I have a couple companies that are doing these big features on him. Everybody adores him. Everybody loves him. Like, and then everyone's like, "Well, he's a, he's your dog of a lifetime." Well, I would say they both are but they're both inserted into, into my life at different times. Like Easton was in my life at the absolute time that I needed him. Right. And he got me going. Brock was inserted into my life at the right time that I needed him. Right. Like Brock pushed me to be not only a better trainer, but a better handler and really a more accomplished handler as well. But I don't know if I would have got out of Brock, what I've gotten out of him. If I had Brock when I had Easton, right. Because I didn't have the knowledge to get him there where you know, and vice versa. And so it's just, it's really interesting how, um, they, they just become such a part of your life. Like you never replace them, right? It's just, you, you add to the family. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, it's a really, really special thing. There's no other bonds like this. 
Yeah, it's great. And I can just tell how passionate you are about it. Just, you know, hearing you discuss the relationships with your dogs and, you know, different training methods. I know that it's, uh, and that's one thing about dogs. And that's one thing I'm sure our audience knows and those out there. I know guys who have duck dogs that are terrible duck dogs, but they still love that dog, you know? And, <laughs> right. and uh, and so that's, you know, it is what it is. They are, you know, obviously considered man's best friend and, and definitely a duck hunter's or waterfowl hunter's best friend as well. As well. Uh, Josh, man, this has been great. Um, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up, but we're going to have to get you back on at some point because we can go through, I think as through our conversation, we could go into deep dives into several different things that you talk about. Um, but man, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. You bet you guys. Yeah. Anytime I'd love to come back and talk with you guys. And if I don't talk to you before, um, have a great hunting season. And uh, if anybody wants to keep up with what we have going on here at the kennel, um, you can follow us on Instagram. I do a lot of stories on our hunts and, uh, just follow us at Riverstone Kennels. Thanks a lot, man. You bet, Chris. Hey, I'd like to thank our guest, Josh Miller, the product training specialist for Sport Dog Brands and owner of Riverstone Kennels for joining us today and enlightening us with all this great information on retrievers and retriever training. I'd like to thank our podcast producer, Clay Baird, for doing a fantastic job getting the show out to you. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us on the podcast, but also supporting wetlands conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks.